Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know what makes this market so darn tough to game? It's that it's got a kind of can't live with it, can't live without quality. Including on days like today where the average is open strong. I mean, and looked fantastic before being slammed. Dow all the way plunging 238 points. S&P plummeting 0.84%. Sell, 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 sell. No, still going down 0.39%. You can't live with this market because we've got some real worries here. First, I think we could be on the verge of a significant slowdown in the U.S. economy. Something doesn't change soon. Consumer and corporate confidence waning. Things just don't feel right in this country. We have a huge number of executives who seem frozen in their tracks. Isn't that what the bond market's telling us with this relentless decline in long-term Treasury yields? Continued today. Sure, the economy seems strong, right? But, but that doesn't mean it can't get weaker. At the end of the day, the business cycle is all about confidence, and it's awfully hard to maintain any kind of confidence when every day we learn something surprising from the U.S. government that throws us off course. I saw it this morning. I woke up and I said, all right, what's the times? So I look at the times, you know, I mean, I, old-fashioned. Lead story, New York Times. Trump administration hardens its attack on climate science. Now, you might think that's good for business, but it's actually more complicated than that. Let's say you're in charge of a gigantic utility, a public utility, one that spends billions of dollars to keep your lights on. What are you supposed to do? Okay, back in the day, Jimmy Carter, remember him, president, tried to wean us off foreign oil by embracing coal. He said we were the Saudi Arabia coal. Our utilities make commitments to build coal plants with about a 40-year cycle. Right? That's how long it's supposed to last. Until Trump came along, the presumption was these plants would naturally be phased out to be replaced with something cleaner, maybe natural gas, maybe solar, maybe wind. But if the White House doesn't believe there's anything wrong with coal and they install people in the EPA who agree with them, why not simply retrofit these coal plants? Uh, uh, maybe the EPA will insist on it. Well, because if, if Trump loses the, next, the, the election next year, we're going to have a Democratic president. And all the Democrats believe in climate change. So let's come back to the people running the utilities. They've got all that money to spend, put people to work. What the heck are they supposed to do here? Simple. They do nothing. They wait this out to see who wins in 2020. They put the pause button on. But if they do nothing, well, what are they doing? They are creating an environment with no jobs where people are going to say, I don't know, what's going to happen next? Let's do nothing. The house of pain. Huge job-producing jobs go out the window. (laughs) I don't know. I can detail dozens of different industries that could be upset by the same issue. Hey, we need more pipelines from that Permian Basin area. I told you in Texas, all that oil. Uh, It's got to go somewhere, right? It's got to go to refineries, it's going to be export. But will Democratic administration allow these pipelines to be completed? Good question. Hey, maybe they'll ban exports. Hey, listen, that's possible. Second, there's a trade war. Huh, no kidding. 
While the vast majority of businesses won't be impacted by the tariffs, so that no one really believes that except for me, they're still having a horrible impact on confidence. When you listen to these retail conference calls from last week, oh, they were so painful. You came away feeling that there's nothing more important than the trade war. We keep hearing this $800 per person number. No proof whatsoever, but we hear it. The perfect industry to own when employment's strong like it is now, the one you can always buy during a robust economy, it's become too risky to buy. The retailers. It's very frustrating to buy a stock when you don't know whether the earnings estimates are going up or going down. And the president's tariffs are withdrawn in that swing. This morning, J.P. Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon said that the trade dispute has become, quote, a real issue, end quote. He says that the trade has gone from, quote, uh, a skirmish to being far more important than that. If this goes south in a bad way and you have other surprises, that could be part of the thing that changes confidence, that changes people's willingness to invest. There we go again. Confident. Hey, remember in September when we were in Philly with him and he was talking about a trade tiff? What happened to that? Third, normally when Treasury yields fall to these levels, dividend stocks go higher. But this time that doesn't seem to be happening. High yielders are staying high yield. We own Dow Chemical and BP for the charitable trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionLawyersPlus.com club. And they yield 5.8% and 5.9% respectively. Yields don't protect you anymore. These are going to be 6.2 and 6.5. No one cares. The stocks keep falling on fears of a worldwide tariff-related slowdown. Fourth, the parade of IPOs never stops. It keeps chewing up all our capital. The unicorns. I hate the unicorns. They've exhausted us. After Lyft and Uber. Oh, how about that Luckin coffee? Finally up today. Investors are very skittish about putting their money in new deals. Okay, Luckin's not a unicorn. It's just a bad stock. Sure, Pinterest, Zoom, and Beyond Meat were terrific right out of the gate. But Pinterest stock then got clobbered after that last quarter. Uh, And I don't know how to describe this Beyond Meat, except to say that its stock is even crazier than I am. Especially after today's run, it's way too expensive. So on the one hand, there are a lot of good reasons why you can't live with this market. But on the other hand, you can't live without it either. Avoiding stocks is just as risky as owning them here. Why? For first is the FOMO factor. Hashtag FOMO. Yesterday, the president told us that we're far away from a trade deal with China. In fact, he said the Chinese will regret not taking the last offer when they had the chance before the talks broke down. Then in the same breath, he tells us we're going to get a great deal. Hold on. Now, if that happens, you're going to feel real stupid if you don't own any stocks. Look, look, look at something like Apple, okay, uh, which has been weighed down by its massive Chinese business. We're finally getting the number cuts I've been expecting here. I was going to put the knife to this, but then people say, oh, he hates Apple. I don't. I think you should own it, not trade it. But even after the estimates have been lowered, you've got a stock that sells for less than 16 times earnings. If we get a deal with China, Apple's going right back up, and you're going to kick yourself for missing it. It will crush you if you're short. Second, plenty of companies have almost no Chinese exposure whatsoever. And these companies will do just fine even in a slower economy. Hey, can't think of any? How about this? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet. Remember Alphabet was Google? Remember Fang? Uh, Do you want to really sell these fast growers that have no Chinese business, knowing that their earnings trajectories will remain fabulous? Hey, do you really want to sell something like AMD, only learn that its new chips are selling insanely well? Thank you, Lisa Sue, Queens' own, which is why the stock rallied nearly 10% today. You really want to bail the financial tech stocks when Global Payments is willing to acquire TSYS, sending the whole group skyrocketing? You want to sell PayPal? Be my guess. Of course not. The third thing that makes it hard to sell, if you really do get a slowdown caused by deteriorating business and consumer confidence, don't you think the Federal Reserve will move to cut interest rates and give us a boost? I actually like that some don't. In retrospect, it was a huge mistake for the Fed to tighten again last uh, last December. They're partially to blame. Some would say all to blame for the decline in confidence. What if the Fed rolls that rate hike back? I think the market would explode higher. 
And that's the problem. The bottom line with this market, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That's why I think you should have some exposure to stocks, but also some cash on the sidelines. The president made it clear that the trade war is going to get worse before it gets better. And I think that damages business confidence enough that you may get lower stock prices. Be patient. Don't pay up for anything here. Wait for your pitch. Right now, in most sectors, it's still too early to take a swing. But if we keep going lower, we will bake in the negatives and the peril will be on the side of the bears, just like it was on the side of the bulls today. How topical. On shoulder, please. John in Massachusetts. John. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Be on again. Go Patriots. What the hell? Top of the show, he has to say that? Go ahead. Finish your thought. My question is about Shopify and how the trade war between U.S. and China has affected a company like Shopify. Just last week, retail took a hit, but today Shopify reached a 52-week high. How can we interpret the trade war's effect on a company like Shopify? Shopify is kind of like your man Belichick, you know? It does its assignment. It gets the job done. 800,000 customers. It's hard to do better than that. They are the engine of the small to medium-sized economy that can't be wrecked by, uh, let's say, world trade. I'm a diplomat. Steve in New York. Steve! Uh, booyah, Kramer son. Long-time listener, first-time caller. My question is about the overall health of the U.S. steel industry and Nucor, yeah. NUE in specific. You've interviewed the CEO early in the year who was optimistic about his company's future as evidenced by investing billions of dollars in a new plant and refurbishing others. But despite steel's tariffs, in a growing economy, new car shares have been in a steady decline, as, as most other steel producers, and is hovering around a year-to-date low. On the bright side, they still have a healthy dividend. Is now the time to buy at a bargain basement Someone asked me that this weekend. I was, in, I was in Mexico uh, doing some work. And uh, I said, you know what, they're, if they're, they're maybe the only steel company that survives. Now, it is absolutely ridiculous that that stock is down where it is, but people feel this worldwide slowdown. And by the way, who are these people who keep saying that, that everything's going up in price? You see, the, do they ever look at cold rolled steel, hot rolled steel? Do they look at oil country tube steel? Do they do that? My life's miserable because I look at that stuff. And what it tells me is there's no inflation. And we should stop thinking that the tariffs are all that bad because everything's down in price, including, by the way, lumber. How about... Uh, Kamal in Illinois. Kamal. Yes. Hey, Jim. Yeah. Booyah. Booyah. Listen, my question is on Baidu stock. Um, you know, it's the Google of uh, China. At least right. That's what I'm hoping it is. And, um, you know, it just had their earnings out and they missed for the first. Well, actually, they had a loss for the first time. And um, the stock collapsed. It's been falling a little bit even before that, but it, it fell into a hole. My okay. question is. Is this a buy now? or is No, this no, that was really an night? awful quarter. I mean, to be honest, that was just a terrible quarter. I mean, this isn't like Alibaba. I can defend Alibaba. They had a good quarter. I don't defend that new listing they're doing in Hong Kong. But that was just a terrible quarter. I'm still mystified by how it happened. But I can tell you this. Please don't touch it. It would be a big mistake. All right. You can choose to leave the market or stay in the market, both at your own peril. Be patient. Don't pay up. Hey, maybe bat on the shoulder for now. Small buys. On Mad Money tonight, looking for something to snack on? Hey, how about Mondelez? I'm going to sit down with the CEO behind brands like Oreo and Sour Patch Cookies and my favorite, Tate's, to see if you could double stuff your portfolio's profits. Then, some love to speculate about what central bankers might do in the future. I hear about it all day. It's all anyone seems to talk about, so I have to join the fray. 
Uh, I would take a more quantitative approach, though, certainly unemotional. And Workday just reported the close, and I've got it exclusive with the CEO. It is all over the map in after hours trading, but I can tell you it was a great quarter, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What's up, everybody? I'm Graham Bunn. So excited to introduce you to Country Shine, where we're talking all things country music. That's right. And I'm Cameron Irwin, co-host and resident country girl at Tinseltown, here to welcome you to the family. Every Tuesday, we'll update you on the latest in country music, culture, and community. And on Fridays, I'll bring on country musicians and all the biggest names in the game. It's a gathering, and we want you here. You can listen to Country Shine with me, Graham Bunn, for free right here on Spotify. For investors, returns can be sweet. And this company is focused on snacking the smart way. Can organic growth and local brands bake in some gains to your portfolio? When people are worried about the economy, the packaged food stocks catch fire. If you're smart, though, you don't just want a packaged food company. You want the best packaged food company, which brings me to Mondelez. That symbol is MDLZ. It's the snack maker you know as Nabisco, Oreo, Ritz, Chips, Ahoy, Toblerone, Nilla Wafers, Trident Gum, among many other brands, including Cadbury, my wife's favorite by far. Ever since Dirk Van Put took over as CEO at the end of 2017, Bondly has been a remarkable turnaround story, and that is one reason stocks up nearly 30% year-to-date. When these guys last reported in late April, they shot the lights out. Get this, nearly 4% organic sales growth. That's huge for a packaged good food company, fueling a terrific earnings beat. So could the stock have more room to run? Let's take, oh boy, I'm excited about this. Take a closer look with Dirk Vandeput. He's the chairman and CEO of Mondelez International, who has lit a fire under this company. To get a better sense of what's going on, where it's headed, Mr. Vandeput, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, Dirk. Oh, pleasure being have here. Have a seat. Thank, Thank you so much for me. coming on the show. I've got to tell you, you've revolutionized this company. And one of the things that you recognize faster than anybody else one size does not fit all. You have, I think you're a globalist, and you've recognized that what sells in China may be different in India, may be different in Russia, and yet all your sales are going up. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And, and you're right. Yes, that's, that's what I believe in. I don't think consumers, particularly in food, want to eat the same thing all over the world. And we're trying to adapt to that. But how did you know about what I think this great word, insurgent brands? How did you realize <laughs> that China might want something that we don't want necessarily? Yeah, uh, well, uh, by listening to the Chinese consumers, um, we try to get local insights and talk to them, listen to them, observe their snacking behaviors, right. and they will tell you if they like it or they don't like it, and, and from there we develop our product. But the, what what says to me is, is that you're willing to spend money to make a lot of money. A lot of your compadres want to cut, 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 because they think that the secret is to just fire as many people and the people will come in to get the brands. I think you're doing the opposite. I think you're growing in every area and you're willing to spend and it's paying off. Yeah, it is. We, we, we do believe that uh, brands in general need a little bit more support in food and we want to invest in them. Don't get us wrong. We are also focused on cost, but we're trying to do it in a slightly different way in the sense that in a big company like ours, many things don't uh, work out perfectly. There's always something going wrong and that right, costs you right. money. So we focused on running things the most 
perfect way we possibly can versus slashing costs. That's All right, so my wife said to ask, you said, how did he not, how come we didn't realize to dip Oreos in chocolate? I mean, who came <laughs> up with that? Was that your idea? No, 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 I wish, but we, we have very good uh, research people and they, they realized that this was something. And I think overall, what's going on, we call it Choco Bakery. It's biscuits and chocolate and somewhere in the middle, there's these biscuits dipped in chocolate, and, and they work really well but for us. You're talking about double-digit growth. This is not just anything, right? No. No, it's, it's, it's good. Well, Oreo is more than just uh, the chocolate version. It's, it's, a, it's about um, connecting to consumers. It's about staying playful, connecting with your kids. Staying playful. I and like mil- that. Millennials like the brand. Generation Z It's their number one food and beverage brand. So they, they really are connecting to the message, and they love all the variety. Wait, and you like to be current. You mentioned playful. Uh, Game of Thrones cookies, yeah. limited edition. Yeah. No one's done those things in your category, right? No, no, no. Moon cookies coming, remembering the first uh, man on the moon. Love it. Oreo. So. All yes. right, you destroyed us. You destroyed our office. I mean, <laughs> you bought this. This is a great local brand. Anyone who was from the aisle, anyone who used to go summer in the aisle knows this was the best. You even came up with a millennial size. I hate the millennials, but that's okay. We'll give them that they need portion restraint, I call it. <laughs> How well is this brand doing? Oh, it, it's, it's on fire. It's really growing very fast. It, uh, it still isn't in every store in the U.S., so it's no? huge potential. No, no, no. And in the store it's in, it doesn't have enough space. It needs more space because it's out of stock all the time. You're telling me that this is when you can't stock. I mean, you can raise price. You, you did raise price for some things. Yeah, for some things we did right. raise price. We didn't do it on this one. This one is, is already a little bit more expensive, but yes. it's, it's a premium cookie. Uh, but we did raise price, I think, in a very balanced way, right. and we're not seeing an effect of that uh, right now. Now, this is very important because this is, to many people, to vegans in particular, this is beyond meat but sustainability. Speaking of sustainability, your cocoa project must be talked about because there are people who, who want to own chocolate. They're concerned about the growers. New generation thinks about things like that. What are you doing? So cocoa is grown in a few countries around the world, usually, usually impoverished countries. Uh, we're talking about Ghana, Ivory Coast, Brazil, Indonesia. And the farmers that, that grow the cocoa live close to the rainforest. They live in, 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 in pretty difficult circumstances. There's hundreds of thousands of them. So what is surrounding this discussion is, are we providing them with sufficient uh, level of living? Um, are they cutting down the rainforest? Can we stop that because they want to have more land? And, and are their children going to school instead of working on the farm? So what we're doing is we're working with the farmers' communities, learning them how to get more yield out of their trees uh, so that they don't cut down the rainforest. We're organizing their communities so that they can take care of themselves, so they get schools, uh, right. uh, hygiene facilities, and so on. And, and we are uh, also making sure that uh, their kids get the right education. We go sort of group by right. group. We have to do 100 But this is you too. You've been there. This is not something that you've offloaded. No, no, no. I, I was in Ghana and in Ivory Coast a few weeks ago, okay. met with uh, the, the government and, and looked at what we could do together there. Yes. Okay, that's great. Now, uh, you're also forward thinking. You've been willing to discuss cannabis. Now, there are a lot of people who recognize that, there, that cannabis, history is saying it's going to happen. Lots of people love snacking and cannabis. Why are you the only consumer packaged good person who's willing to even talk about it? Um, that I, I don't know. Um, I think uh, particularly CBD, which there's THC and there's CBD. Oh, there CBD, is? Yes, yes. Uh, CBD has, has uh, some, some good connotations. Wait a minute, it's a sale in a lot of places. Remember, they made hemp 
yes. legal. So, I mean, that's a natural one, right? And so we're looking at it. Uh, don't get me wrong. We're not going to be the biggest CBD play in town, but we do think it's going to there's going to be a moment that there's chocolate with CBD, there's biscuits with CBD, and we just want to be prepared for that. Uh, okay. Um, I think CBD and chocolate, obviously chocolate bars in the States are very important. Here's something I've been trying to figure out. And the same thing goes with Hershey. What the heck happened with chocolate? Why did chocolate make such a growth? Why did that have such a, a growth spurt? Because gum hasn't. A lot of other candies just doing okay. Did the world rediscover chocolate? I, I think they did. I think... The world rediscovered indulgence and mindfulness and enjoying, enjoying what you eat and uh, relaxing while doing it. And chocolate is a perfect uh, me, You're for in that. the now when you eat chocolate? I mean, you're, you're trying I mean it's to. kind of ethereal, yeah. isn't it? It, it, it? it is. It is. But there's something special when you eat chocolate. You, you, you savor the taste. You feel different. You get an uplift. So I think uh, consumers these days... On one hand, they will help their wellness, but also they want indulgent at the right moment. And I think chocolate is perfect for that. How's the worldwide consumer doing in your eyes? I would say overall, uh, pretty good. Um, there's, I mean, if I look at, at food, they're doing pretty good. Right. I would say as it relates to their overall life circumstances mm-hmm. and how the middle class feels and the lower class feel, they don't, they don't feel well no. at the moment. They're spending okay. So we're, we're pretty happy about it, but I think there's something going on with, we call it, yeah. uh, uh, the changes in Mexico, Brazil, uh, some of the discussions around Brexit and so on. There's, there's this unease with their, with their but, overall but, but all those countries, uh, people are snacking more. They're, they're snacking, well, because it's a lifestyle change. Consumers are more on the go, they eat more out of home. Uh, millennials particularly don't really want to sit down and have a big meal. They, they want to sort of fuel themselves. And they eat seven times a day. And so snacking is really uh, growing as a, as, a, as a habit. And also the market is growing as a consequence right, of Last that. question. When are we going to get the yard Toblerone in the, America? Well, I have a big one. Yeah. I send you one. We have a big one no, like not this. not just me. I was thinking maybe the 317 million people in our country. I, I would love to sell them a Toblerone like this. It works this in Italy. It's the thing that you get when you're on the rest stop <laughs> or the road. You've done a remarkable job in what? Less, in less than a year and a half. year and a half. And you've got country. great growth, organic growth. Fabulous acquisitions. Congratulations to everything you do. Thank and you. And most importantly, thank you for helping the cocoa workers, because that's what you're going to be remembered by. Okay. That's what you're remembered by. Thank All right, you. that's Dirk Vandeput. He's Mondelez International Chairman and CEO, MDLZ. This is the one to buy in the weakness, because you heard it. Snacking. It's taking over the world. Man, money's back into the break. This workday may be over, but Kramer's workday is just heating up. Mad Money welcomes a cloud king. And we'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. What could breathe new life into this market after what's developing into a very difficult month? Some bulls are hoping for the Federal Reserve to give us a boost with a well-timed rate cut. 
But I always tell you hope is not part of the equation. So does it make sense to expect that the Fed will reverse course and starting to ease since this is really, as I said at the top of the show, at the crux of why you should stay or you should go? Pundits love to speculate about what central bankers might do in the future or what they should do. But tonight I want to take a more quantitative approach to this issue, which is why we got to get less emotional. We go off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. And, you know, she's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of High Probability Commodity Trading, to get a better read on the Federal Reserve. A lot of times we talk to her about oil. She's been dead right. Let's look at what she's telling us about the Fed Fund futures. Specifically, we're looking at these futures contracts. They're designed for the sole purpose of allowing traders to bet on where short-term interest rates might be headed. You know, people like to bet on anything, right? I didn't bet on football before I bet on this, but I'm not allowed to bet. Basically, this whole instrument exists to let people speculate on the Fed's next move. So take a look at this daily chart of the Fed Fund's futures for this December. Before we get into the details, you need to know how this thing works. The Fed Fund futures are they are a little odd. They reflect 100 minus the market's expected interest rate at the contract's expiration. That means if the consensus is that the Fed will raise rates to 3%, the Fed funds rate will go to 97. See, this is what happened, remember? They did this in November. When everyone thought we'd get a series of lockstep rate cuts, this was what predicted it. You know, that's when people made that bet. They made a lot of money. But what does the chart tell us right now? Right now, the Fed funds futures for December are a little below 98. So you've got to look at this. This is today, which tells us speculators are anticipating the federal funds rate will go to about 2% by the end of the year. For Garner, this is clear evidence that speculators are banking on one or two rate cuts over that period of time. And when you see where the 10-year Treasury went out today, I mean, interest rates plummeted again. Well, you can see what the consensus is talking about. Why? Because right now the Federal Reserve's target rate is two and a quarter to 2.5. If investors expected Fed Chief Jay Powell to do nothing for the rest of the year, the Fed futures would be at 97.5. The fact that they're at 97.9 may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's huge. You trillions of dollars bet in this market. It means the futures markets are forecasting that the Fed will start easing sometime in the next six months. Now, that doesn't mean these speculators will turn out to be right, though. People who try to game the Fed are often wrong and disappointed. Last November, when Jay Powell was making threatening noises about how he needed to raise interest rates aggressively in order to cool down a red-hot economy, remember that? The Fed funds rate went to 97, okay? Uh, Meaning people were looking for a 3% federal funds rate. Then the stock market cratered, the economy slowed down, and Powell changed course, talking about the need for patience. Hence the But Garner points out that it didn't take long for the futures market to go from anticipating no change to anticipating rate cuts. By April, the Fed funds rate uh, futures were soaring. So you can see see this big rally. That's all people making a bet. How would a bookmaker break it down? Okay, Garner notes that the Fed funds futures are predicting an 80 percent chance, 80, of at least one rate cut by the end of the year. Specifically, the futures market is priced in a 40 percent probability of one rate cut, a 30 percent chance of two cuts, and a smaller group of traders are even betting on three or more rate cuts. That's really on the outside. That's the over, over, over. And all of this seems like an overreaction. Garner believes that the Fed's fund, the Fed's is stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, we've got robust economic growth, uh, coupled with barely any inflation. Take a look at that. Obviously, employment growth is pretty good. That should be nirvana for the Fed, so there's no real reason for them to do anything. On the other hand, when J-PAL tightened too aggressively late last year, it really did slow down the economy. And it's possible the Fed might be willing to preemptively cut rates if that means staving off a recession of their own making. 
However, Garner's confident that we could see a multi-year pause from the Fed, both because it makes sense as monetary policy and because of what she sees in these charts. When it comes to the Fed funds futures, both the relative strength index, that's the RSI, okay, and the Williams percentage R oscillator are in mildly overbought territory. Above that, you know, this one's just a little bit overbought which suggests the futures have come up too far too fast, meaning this thing went, was, was an overreaction. Plus, there's a powerful salient 97.9 to 98. So she's saying they're peaking right here, right now. She's making a very big call, people. If Garner's right, the December futures contract should drift back to where it was trading at the beginning of the year, around 97.5. Remember, right now, this thing is baking in more than one rate cut, and that seems way too optimistic for her. And it's not just the Fed funds futures. Check out this daily chart of the iShares 20-plus-year Treasury ETF. Right now, long-term treasuries are flirting with multi-year highs. Remember, when rates go down, bonds go up in value, okay? Yields are near multi-year lows. While long-term interest rates are only partially impacted by the Federal Reserve, there's still some correlation. And as far as Garner's concerned, this chart is bad news for the bulls. It suggests the Treasury prices are poised to go back down, meaning yields will go up meaning more rate cuts might not be in the menu. If I told you how contrary this thing is, it's an extraordinary call by Carly. Extraordinary. Now, the TLT has a powerful ceiling of resistance at 129, uh, just above where it's currently trading. Meanwhile, the relative strength index has crept into overbought territory. Okay, that's easy to see, right? For the third time in the year, the last couple times this happened, well, guess what? We got significant pullbacks. Put it all together, and Garner expects the TLT to come back down to the 124, 125 level. And if that fails to hold, perhaps even to the 118, 122 level, that would be incredible. And like I said, I don't know a soul who's listened to this, who believes in what Garner's saying. That's okay. I like that. If this happens, she believes the stock market though, will actually breathe a sigh of relief. Stocks will like it, she says. When Treasury yields are low, stock traders worry that the bond market could be signaling an impending recession. Historically, that's been a pretty accurate pattern. But Garner argues that it's a misread on the current situation. Right now, our bond market is distorted, she says. Interest rates are so low in the rest of the world that foreign money keeps flowing here, pushing our bond yields lower. Okay. It's not a sign of recession, she says. It's a sign that our treasuries are the only game in town if you're a global investor looking for effectively risk-free securities. So what does this all mean for the stock market? I want you to take a look at this weekly chart of the S&P 500, which I know most of you care about more than bonds. But remember, the bond market is much larger than the stock market. If investors are expecting one or two rate cuts, it means they think the economy is going to get worse, giving the Fed more of an incentive to change policy. Garner doesn't see much evidence for that in the S&P chart. Right now, the benchmark index seems to be waiting for the next piece of news to set the tone. Technical oscillators are mid-range, kind of right in the middle, no extremes. S&P has pulled back uh, from its highs, but at least for now, the pain is not that great. Garner can't rule out a test of the S&P's current floor of support at 27.25 or even a slide to the mid-260s. This is a lot of worry is right there. A lot of people, one of the reasons why we went down at the end of the day, people feel we're going to get to that level. However, if she's right about the Fed, then she thinks the path of least resistance for stocks will be higher as investors regain their confidence. Garner wouldn't be surprised if the S&P can work its way to 3,030 nirvana, which is why she thinks any pullback to the 2600s would mean that you have to sit there and buy, buy, buy. Okay. bottom line, the charts in a completely contrary way, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggests that a lot of people are anticipating a more lenient Fed. Based on the action of Fed fund futures, traders are betting on one or two rate cuts this year, uh, and she's saying that's a very risky bet to make. And I don't think the Fed will go there unless the economy gets substantially worse from here, although that's always a possibility given the big-picture data has gotten a heck of a lot weaker over the past few months. Can you imagine if we got back there? All right. There's much more Mad Money at Workday just reported at the close. Smoke it!
But can the company's amazing run continue? It's not really clear. We got to find out. Uh, and then uh, when when this global payments decision to buy total system services meet for PayPal, what does it mean for PayPal? I'm giving you my take. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. But on a not-so-hot day like this one, Cloud reigns supreme. Take Workday, the cloud-based software company, helps businesses automate all sorts of back-office jobs, especially in human resources, payroll, financial management. This is a textbook secular growth play. And went out to San Francisco two weeks ago, they told a terrific story. Now, today, Workday reported, and the numbers were excellent. Solid top and bottom line beat, fueled by strong subscription revenue. Hey, look, only problem, stock has run a great deal into the quarter. So let's drill down with Anil Bushri. He is the co-founder and CEO of Workday. Learn more about the quarter and his company's product prospects. Mr. Bushri, welcome back to Mad Money. Hello, Jim. How are you? I am good, Anil. Once again, congratulations on a major beat. You just keep doing it. What I wanted to drill down today, I mentioned products. What I really meant to say is that you've got a whole suite of products now. Uh, you are no longer just in human capital management. And the more I read, the more I realize that the financial uh, cap, the financial management, since adaptive, is really front seat in terms of a lot of the clients that you're getting. You're, you're absolutely right, Jim. Uh, for our core accounting products, we saw 50% year-over-year growth. Uh, planning the, the suite that we got from the acquisition of Adaptive has been just doing fabulously well. This past quarter for Adaptive, we signed Airbus, AstraZeneca, and H&R Block. So we're seeing those uh, large institutions now adopting planning uh, in the same way they've adopted HR and finance. So we're, we're in, a, in a nice place right now. Uh, it all stems from having happy customers. Happy customers tend to buy more from you, and they're looking for us beyond HR, looking to us for finance, for uh, analytics, and for planning. It's interesting you mentioned Airbus. There's a Wedbush piece that came out just a, a week ago. It talked about how uh, Workday competes against SAP, but SAP is mostly locked down a lot of Europe. Well, wait a second. You have Siemens. And you have Airbus. I can't think of two more quintessentially European companies that work day one. <laughs> well, we've had, a, we've had a good run in Europe, and we continue to see it as a, still a relatively untapped market. I think we have about 450 European-based uh, multinational companies as customers. And, of course, all the U.S. multinationals generally have a large presence in Europe. So it's a market we're excited about and uh, continue to do well in. Sometimes I like to judge a company by actually who they are winning. Uh, Procter & Gamble, Geico, and Quicken are three of the smartest companies in the world. Geico obviously buffed Okay, Quicken, I hope Dan Gilbert gets better fast. He is a genius. P&G, undisputable. How come you're winning these companies that truly are managed by the smartest people on earth? Well, that's nice of you to say. I think they're three extremely well-run companies. Dan happens to be a friend. I, I wish him the best as well for a speedy recovery. All these companies are going through a transformation, uh, a digital transformation for their HR and finance operations. We were fortunate to get an early start in the cloud. We have an architecture that scales to the largest companies in the world. Companies like Walmart and Amazon uh, use Workday. And so it gives these companies comfort that we can get there. And uh, we've done it all with a natural cloud architecture. And we do it with high levels of customer satisfaction. 
All those customers, I'm sure, talked to many Workday customers before choosing us. Yeah, I mean, my understanding, people have to understand that there's a lot of times that companies are very much uh, deeply invested in Oracle. I don't mean to slam Oracle, but it seems like you are winning a lot of business away from Oracle, including some, I'd say, Fortune 50 companies are leaving them to go to you. Customers are are very smart. Uh, You know, 20 years ago when we were selling technology, on-premise technology was not always easy to figure out what the best product was. In the cloud, it's it's much clearer the best product and the best support. And you know, I like our chances when customers do references. Our customers are happy. We're at 98% customer satisfaction levels, and I believe we've got a the industry-leading architecture for for cloud solutions for HR and finance. And I think that that bodes well against our legacy competitors. I often try to figure out how do you get 98% satisfaction. Here's what I'm coming down. You can tell me if this makes any sense to you. We're talking about impact per share and purpose per share this year. You are a top-rated place to work on in our country. Are you getting people that you could not get otherwise that are making it so that you are competing against other companies that aren't getting the same people you are, caliber people, because of how much, how great it is to work there? I, I think you're right. I hope you're right. And our very simple premise is that happy employees make for happy customers. Every employee has part of their compensation tied to customer satisfaction. As you know, when you're happy when you go to work, you tend to do your best work. And um, this past year, we were number four on the Great Place to Work Institute, best places to work in the U.S. That definitely helps us recruit the best and keep them at Workday. I spoke to President John Brodman of Bucknell. Uh, who my wife's on the board there, who was very proud to be able to to have a representative speaking at one of your conferences. I always find that that, too, is a great sign. President Brobman was saying what was great about it is that he can prepare his budget better to fundraise, prepare his budget better for school. You guys have quite a business with universities. We do. And in the case of Bucknell, uh, what's what's really neat is that they were a Workday HR and finance customer. They were also an adaptive planning uh, business planning customer. And so as the two companies came together, they happen to be happy customers for both. And, and we can do some unique things since they effectively run all of the Workday products. And in terms of where, where we go next with higher ed, we're, we're also continuing to build out a student system that really automates the higher ed back, backbone for, for all higher ed institutions. Yeah, I know they're going with that one too. One last question. The gloom is palpable here. And, you know, I mean, we just, every day we come in, people talk about China, people talk about politics. I, there are some secular trends that transcend that, I'd like to think. And one of those is what you're doing, human capital management, and what you're doing in uh, budgeting and finance. I don't want to be too Pollyannish, but these are great secular trends, aren't they? They absolutely are. Uh, you know, they, they are so powerful at this point. The combination of cloud and the business process changes are now dubbed uh, human resources transformation and finance transformation taking new technology and redoing the way you do business to reflect the more modern opportunities that are out there, whether it's machine learning, whether it's uh, agility, all those things are available. And I think they're very, they're very strong secular trends uh, that will continue. Who knows what will happen with the broader economy? So far, we haven't seen any bumps along the way. But as you know, we don't have a lot of exposure to China. Uh, but I think these secular trends remain, will remain intact for many years to come. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Congratulations, good quarter. Thank you for explaining us the new world. It's really valuable to have you. Great to thank see you, you, sir. It's always good to see you. 
Thank right, you. Guys, this has been an unbelievable performer. Uh, one of the things that's happened over and over again, and Neil Bushby comes on the show, co-founder and CEO of Workday, stock goes down for some reason, and then take a look at what happens a few weeks later. Hope that's your opportunity. Stick with Kramer. It is time. It's time for the late one. And then the late round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the late round question. I'm going to start with Brian in Colorado. Brian. Hey, Jim. Uh, what's your thoughts on Alibaba? Well, right now, it's literally the only Chinese stock that I'll recommend. But now they're doing some big listing in Hong Kong, kind of wrecking the whole trade story. You know what? This is a proxy for trade. Let's just hold off for now. It is a good company, though. How about we go to Scott in Kansas? Scott! Booyah, Jim! Oh, I like Kansas. I like fire up. Well, I talked right over. What's what's that? Okta. Okay, Oh, man. Okta is kind of like Workday, which reported tonight, and people trying to parse it, looking for some reason to sell. I see no reason. Okta's the same boat. It's one of our cloud princes. It's going to go higher. I like the stock. But it did hit it too high today, so let's be careful. Why don't we go to Richard in Colorado? Richard! Hi, Jim. Recently, I was looking to diversify and added uh, Banco Santander, the SAN, to my portfolio. It hasn't done much. What do you think about it? You know what? I'm surprised that Gana Boutin is terrific. But it does yield 6.5%, but the fact is, it is more of a proxy in Europe than people realize. And Europe is so darn weak, it is ridiculous. Don't forget Brexit. I want to recommend the stock hard, but I can't until I find some level that Europe is at least sane. And that's going to depend on Deutsche Bank and Brexit. I'm not done. We're going to Randall in Florida. Randall! Booyah! Booyah. My, my son and I are huge fans. Thank you. His first buy, his first buy, his first stock recently was Nike, NKE. Should I join him? I like Nike. I mean, I read through that whole Foot Locker release. Foot Locker screwed up. Nike hasn't screwed up. What's happened is that people hate the chart, Nike, and they're selling, selling, selling. Let's get it in the mid-70s. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. The battle for the cash register is no different than the battle for the consumer's wallet. At the end of the day, everybody's fighting for a larger piece of the pie. This morning, we learned that Global Payments, they've been on the show, is merging with TSYS to form a payments colossus that handles everything that happens after you pay a business with your credit card. Pretty opaque, right? But pretty lucrative. These two companies have all sorts of payments technologies that help merchants with seamless transactions. Together, they, uh, the combined entity will own a much larger piece of the cash register than before. While TSYS grows more slowly than global payments, I love their handheld credit card solution. It's called Genius, which lets a server swipe your credit card at the table rather than forcing them to take it to the register. Hey, that's exactly what you want if you own uh, part of a restaurant like I do, is people don't like it when the server disappears with your card. On top of that, TSYS makes it easy to look at how you're doing in real time each day. Uh, therefore, it's when you're open, it's really hard to figure out what's going on. But if you do, a small, medium-sized business company is able to have budgeting with these tools. Without it, well, they kind of don't know what's going on. And that, that's why the merger makes a ton of sense. Sometimes, though, the fight isn't worth winning. You know, we just learned today that Citigroup, this was, in CM, this was in CNBC.com, gave up on the new Apple credit card business. They were in advanced talks with Apple, 
but let the business go to Goldman Sachs because they didn't think they could earn an acceptable profit on this card. Citigroup is one of the greatest credit card issuers out there. They handle the gigantic Costco account, which makes them a fortune. So what happened here? Behind the scenes, I'm hearing that the demand for the Apple card may be so great that it could trigger a tsunami of orders, one that no bank is set up to handle too costly. The upfront cost for Goldman could be enormous. Of course, they think it's worth it. If you listen to Goldman, they're incredibly enthusiastic about the business. As they told me, quote, we're thrilled to partner with Apple and Apple Card. Goldman Sachs seeks to disrupt consumer finance by putting the customer first. We are excited for customers to use Apple Card, which is designed to help people take control of their financial lives. End quote. Hey, I think it's noble. Could be costly. Now, we still don't know the exact launch date. I think that's actually kind of quizzical. And the fact that Citigroup shied away from the Apple card, well, let's say it just makes me skeptical. However, Goldman wants some exposure to the red-hot financial tech category. It's a group that includes every single payment processor. That's why, even if the upfront costs are enormous, it might be worth the investment for them, especially given how cheap the stock is right now. Do you know that Goldman Sachs is the lowest price earnings multiple of any major bank? It's kind of embarrassing, but it's true. What else? As soon as the Global Payments TSYS deal was announced, I heard people speculating that it could be a Square or PayPal killer. Hey, Square's done a terrific job of simplifying the register with its card reader. That's that little white thing, including point-of-sale technology. Let's lend, lend businesses money against their own receipts. As for PayPal... This company is the real juggernaut. It's a global payments company run by the inspirational Dan Schulman. With PayPal, you're also getting Braintree, king of e-commerce, and Venmo, peer-to-peer payments. It's gotten so big, millennials now use Venmo as a verb. You know, I hate the millennials, but I have to pay attention to them. My view, if global payments TSYS the tie-up is so bad for PayPal, why the heck was the stock one of the best performers of the SP 500? Simple. Every time you see competitors teaming up to try to take share from PayPal, it just reminds people how these guys are already the undisputed worldwide leader in payments, which is what makes this such a fabulous fintech stock and one that's rarely down. And when it does go down, you got to buy the darn thing with both sticks. Stick with Craig. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. You need a tough day like today. I think you need a wasabi Oreo. Not bad. You know what? What this says to me, wasabi, is that there will be a whoa. There'll be a trade deal. It just may not be. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But there's always a bull market somewhere. Probably not just be right here. Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. 1980s New York. Five titans redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Bosky, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern, only on CNBC-TV.